Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. Mr. Bean uh, is one of my favorites. Um, I guess there's something about British comedy that just I get. I don't know. But uh, uh, Mr. Bean, he he always finds himself in some sort of trouble. I think I showed another clip from him where he was trying to stay awake in church at one point. Um, Waiting on a ride, looking looking to hitchhike to find himself out of the countryside there. But I think that video really does sum up well our journey over the next few months through First and Second Thessalonians. Because we find ourselves living today waiting. We find ourselves living today waiting on the fulfillment of God's promises. We, of course, see over and over again where God has kept his word, where God has kept his promises, where God has been faithful. But just as I shared with the children, there is that promise that's still outstanding, that promise of Christ's return that, that we still are waiting for, that we're still living in, in the expectation of, and it's not happened yet. Over the course of time, people have tried to assign a time or ascribe a season to it, but uh, the reality is, is we still simply don't know when that return will take place. And waiting is hard. Waiting is especially hard when we don't know how long we're going to have to wait. If we just had, a, had an idea, you know, again, 30 minutes and, and you'll be out the door. You know, if we just had an idea of how long we'd have to wait, then perhaps. But waiting when we don't know how long it's going to be is particularly hard. And so over the next few months, as we look at these two letters in the New Testament, we want to make sure that we are waiting well. And we want to make sure we let Mr. Bean's experience here uh, serve as a cautionary tale for us. One, we don't want to be waiting for the wrong thing. But two, we don't want to miss the bus because we find ourselves locked in the dark. So this morning, we're going to spend some time as a, by way of introduction to get ourselves ready to talk about this uh, letter of First and Second Thessalonians. And so today, we're only going to look at the very first verse of the letter. I'm not even going to ask you to stand. It's going to be so brief. But First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, Paul, Sylvanus, uh, Sylvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you. And peace. Father, I thank you for this brief verse that begins this introduction and this journey through what is one of the most exciting and hope-filled letters in the New Testament. Lord, we know that there, is, um, there are promises that you have made that are still outstanding, and today we live and work and, and worship as people who are waiting. We don't know how long we're going to have to wait. We don't know what that journey is going to look like, but while we wait, Lord, may we wait well. God, guide us as we consider your words today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. To the church of the Thessalonians, Paul's letters have often been described as a conversation in context. Uh, Again, I think uh, it's almost Super Bowl time, so we can use football analogies still. Imagine walking into a high school football game in the middle of the second quarter. As you approach the stadium, you can hear the home team booing and jeering, and you can hear the visitors' band cranking up their fight song. As you enter the stadium, you can see the away team lining up for a kickoff. When you look at the scoreboard, it says that the away team is up by a touchdown. You sit down at your seat, and you overhear behind you angry parents repeating some very unkind words about the referees that are inappropriate for us to share today in church. 
You didn't see the events that led to the current situation, but you are able to piece some things together based on what you have observed in the few moments prior to and immediately after taking your seat. You're able to discern with a high degree of confidence that the referee made a boneheaded call that led to the opposing team taking the lead. You feel pretty good about that. that. You feel that that is what has happened as you have walked into this scenario. This is very much how Paul's letters function. There's already something going on. There's already a story. There's already a game that has been playing. There's already something that's happened that we don't necessarily, we're not privy to. Now, there's clues, there's things that we can learn, but there's already a story that's underway. There's a conversation that's already taking place. And when we open to one of Paul's letters, we're actually opening up in the middle of that conversation. At the same time, we know these letters are addressed to a specific church in a specific place at a specific time, but we also know they're written for us as well. This is not just for the church at Thessalonica. This is a church, this is a letter that, that by extension is for us as well. And so the challenge for us today in 2023 is to take these letters that are ancient and to learn to apply them to us in light of where they were written and in light of the story that was being told as well as in light of our current situation. So as we look at the church of the Thessalonians to whom this letter is addressed, we are fortunate in the sense that we have a bit of access to the pregame show to keep our football analogy. We visited this town last February when during our series through Acts. I won't re-preach that sermon, but if you want to look back to Acts chapter 16 and 17, you'll have some context for this morning. Back in Acts chapter 16, Paul was given a vision from a man by Macedonia who was urging Paul and his companions to come over and help. So Paul reasoned that this must be God's way of telling them to take the gospel out of Asia and into Europe. So Paul and his companions crossed the Aegean Sea. They first ministered in a town called Philippi. We understand a lot that happened in Philippi. There you have the story of Lydia and the, the Philippian jailer. You have these incredible conversions that take place in the book of Acts. Uh, we, we remember Paul and Silas being locked in stocks in prison and singing the hymns when, when God freed them with the earthquake. And we have the letter to the church at Philippi. And so Philipp, uh, the church at Philippi is something that's rich for us as New Testament believers. They leave Philippi and they landed in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. And they immediately saw evangelistic success. They went, they preached, people were converted. There were people who were saved as a result of the preaching of the gospel. That's what's supposed to happen. We understand there was a man named Jason who was there and he was a leader of that early church. They probably met at his house. And all this is taking place in this city of Thessalonica. And again, we know Thessalonica was a was a major city. It wasn't just a wide spot in the road. As ancient cities go, it was a, it was a big one. It had a population of over 100,000 people. Just for point of reference, Walker County has somewhere around 70,000 residents. The city of Chattanooga has about 180,000 residents. And so that's how big the city of Thessalonica was. It was a wealthy city, had a well-developed economy. It was on trade routes, had a good harbor. There were all kinds of things about Thessalonica that helped it to have lots of prosperity. They were known for their wealth and prosperity. They had an abundance of natural resources available to them, and they were on that major Roman road. It's like an interstate uh, in the ancient world, and they were situated right on that interstate highway. We know Thessalonica was a free city. 
It's not something you could say about other Roman cities. What that means is that, is that Thessalonica didn't have a military outpost governing things. It wasn't present there. So the, the Thessalonians were in charge of their own, their own affairs, their own political situations. They were almost a democratic city, which would have been something unlike anything else in that area. And so they were free from all that military occupation. They could make their own currency and coins. And so the city of Thessalonica was a very free place in that day and time. To help maintain that freedom, they had a, a well-developed political structure. At the top of that political structure were in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, we read about them. They're called city authorities in our translation, but they were called the politarchs. And so you had the, the politarchs who were in charge of the community. They were responsible for the governing of the city. And if they couldn't keep everything running smoothly, then that's when the Roman Empire would come in and uh, assert their authority. Uh, Thessalonica had a very diverse religious environment. Like many major cities today, you had all kinds of cultures that were living together. And Rome's method of dealing with all this was very simple. Rome would say, you keep your religion, you keep your, your faith, but you worship the emperor as part of your religion. And for religions that had lots of gods, that was easy. It was okay if you had lots of gods to just add the emperor to your, to your list, but for Christians, adding Caesar to the list was not feasible. And so for Thessalonica, bowing a knee to Caesar kept the Roman legions away, and it wasn't a big deal. But for the church there, it was a big deal. And so in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, we actually find the indictment against Paul and his companions. He says in, uh, in verse 6 there, he said, these men who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And so the indictment against Paul and his companions is that the gospel was turning the world upside down. And listen, when your world was focused on your politics and on your economy and on your freedom, when your world was, uh, that starts to sound very familiar, doesn't it? When your world was focused on those things, and in comes this gospel that says your economy is not the most important thing. In comes this gospel that says there's another king, his name is Jesus, you probably shouldn't bow the knee to Caesar. And then comes this gospel that says you're no longer free. Instead, Paul says he's a, he's a slave to Christ, doulos to Christos, he is a slave to Jesus. You're no longer free. Isn't it amazing? We are called to freedoms. We celebrate our freedoms, but in our freedom, we submit wholly and completely to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he, he gives us freedom as Christians, but we are surrendered and submitted completely and totally to him. And so these letters, First and Second Thessalonians, are written to a church in the middle of this city. And the church and the message of the gospel stands up and against the very core values of this city and this system. This city was known for its wealth, but there were leading people turning to this Jesus, even if it meant they were no longer going to be wealthy. This city was known for its freedom, but these people were turning to Jesus, even if it meant bringing the heavy hand of the Romans against their city. This city was known for its embrace of Caesar as emperor and God. But these people were turning to Jesus, declaring that he alone is God. 
And so when these opponents of the gospel come and say, these men are turning the world upside down, listen very carefully, they really believe they were turning their world upside down. And I still believe today that the gospel ought to be turning the world upside down. And so we find in Acts chapter 17, Paul has to leave Thessalonica. Doesn't get to spend long there. Doesn't have a long ministry there. He has to leave Thessalonica in a midnight daring escape, something straight from the movies. And we know he doesn't get to visit them again, at least as far as we know. But the presence of First and Second Thessalonians lets us know that the church was established in this city and that the gospel was doing its work. Later on in the letter, we know Timothy gets to go to Thessalonica to help strengthen things. But that's the extent of what we know, other than what we can take from the letters. So here's our football game. We, we know what's happened. We got the pregame show. We're looking at the scoreboard. We've heard the crowds cheering. We've seen the referees. We've watched the game. We sort of know what's going on. So now we can dig in and, and find out what the rest of the game holds for us. It's important that we understand these things because it lets us know what's going on in the game. It helps us better understand this conversation that's taking place in a context, which takes us back to this opening verse in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. And I believe this, the opening words of any letter that Paul gives us are very important. And they are the word of God, it's not just throwaway words. We tend to like to skim them. There's, I know how we read the Bible, because I know how I read the Bible when I'm in a hurry. There's things I skim and there's things I read. And, and those things that are on repeat, I tend to skim. Those things that, are, uh, that are, are challenging, I'll skip those. These introductory verse, like the, did you know that the heading to all the Psalms is actually Scripture? Like, like before verse 1, that's actually part of Scripture. We don't, like, when's the last time you read who wrote it and what it was for? Yeah, that's part of Scripture. That's part of, of, God's, of God's Word, even though it comes before what we call verse 1. And so we get to Paul's letters, and it's like, okay, it's Paul. He's writing to a church. He wishes them well. Let's get to the meat of it. But don't skip verse 1. Verse 1 is good. Verse 1 is important. Verse 1 sets the stage for us. First words are important here. Of course, who it's from, who's it's addressed to. Of course, it's a greeting. But there's three things I want to point out this morning from this very simple first verse of 1 Thessalonians. And the first thing Paul says here, after he lists his name and his companions, he says to the church. Well, duh, of course it's to the church. Most of his letters are to the church. There's very few individual letters. I think we'd say Timothy, Titus, Philemon. I mean, that, that, you know, that's, what, that's about the extent of our, of our individual correspondence in the New Testament. Of course it's to the church. The church would get the letter, and the way it would work is the church would get the letter, the elder uh, or elders would, would read the letter, and then they would publicly read the letter, and there'd be somebody who was frantically copying it. Because what would happen is they didn't have a way to click email forward. And so the only way you got the letter to pass to somebody else is somebody had to write it down. And they, they took that copy and they'd pass it off to the church in the neighboring town. And so over the course of time, Paul's letters to the church at Thessalonica would begin to be spread across the neighboring churches, which is how we got to the point of including it in the, in the Bible, is because that letter gained traction in other churches and other churches were reading it and treating it as Scripture, and so 1 Thessalonians begins to spread that way. And so this is to the church. The church is shared it. The church is copied it. The church is spread it around. 
and now it's considered a scripture. But this is more than just a, an address. This is more than just to the church because it's to the church and then it's modified by something very important. It says, to the church in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It just got real important because now, we, now we're working on defining the church. So, yeah, we know who the church is, but Paul's very specific here. He's defining the church very carefully. He gives it definition and qualification. And suddenly, with this simple phrase, Paul has set the church apart from other organizations, from other religious entities in Thessalonica. Paul has set the church apart from the emperor. He doesn't say this is the church of Emperor Caesar. He says this is the church of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is qualifying this church. And it's one that should be very, paid very careful attention to today. You came to worship today. Hopefully you came to Sunday school today too, unless you came on Thursday. Hopefully you've got a Sunday school class that you're, you're, you're attending. If you don't, we got a new one starting in a couple weeks that you might be interested in attending. You did not come to church. You came to worship. You hopefully came to a Bible study. You did not come to church. I know we say, hey, I'm going to church today. You want to go with me? Hey, I'd love for you to come to church with me. I know we say that, but we really don't mean that. Because church is not, church is not an event. Church is a thing. Church is not an event. We worship together. That's the event. We didn't come to church today. We are the church today. And we need to make sure that the church is a thing that is defined for, by something more transcendent than we often recognize. And Paul couches the church in this magnificent transcendence. He says that we are the church in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does that matter? Is that important? I think it's very important today. There's a tendency among American evangelicals to approach the church with a very self-centered perspective. What can the church do for me? What do they do to help? Did I like the music? Did I like the preaching? Did I like this thing or that thing? And we approach it so many times in this way. One commentator writing back in 1998 said this. Over the course of the last two decades, it would be four decades now, over the course of the last four decades, as significant shifts have occurred uh, in the way many Americans view the church, it is no longer uncommon, for example, to encounter a book or a speaker describing church members as customers, potential converts or members as prospects, and the gospel, church activities and programs as products to be marketed. Worship is confused with entertainment and faithfulness with being successful or blessed. Meeting the needs of customers is said to be the key to church growth. Trends are predicted. Increasing numbers of people will select two to five churches to be their group of local churches. And on any given weekend, they will determine which church to attend according to their own most keenly felt needs. Equally as revealing is the language one hears people using to explain why they change churches. My old church wasn't meeting my needs. Or to evaluate a Sunday morning service. That really blessed me. Or I didn't get anything out of it today. More and more, in other words, we are viewing church in terms of what it can do for us. And we see that. And this was in 98 that it was written. And man, COVID in the last three years has just exacerbated this over and over again. 
Because we recognize, and if you're not seeing it, you're missing this, there is a strong tendency for church to become me-centered rather than God-centered. Which is why Paul, when he says this is to the church, he doesn't say to the church made up of the Thessalonians. He doesn't say to the church made up of, of all you people. He says to the church in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Before he ever gets to the role of the person, he gets to the point that the church is couched and founded in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God doesn't exist for the sake of the church. The church exists for the play, praise and glory, and worship of a holy God. And that's why you came here today. That's why you're here. Not because this is for you, but because you are for God. That's what you're here for. At least it better be. Paul wastes no time in making this point crystal clear. There's no doubt, there's no confusion. This is the church, it is set apart, it is different, it is unique, it is not the emperor worship, it is not the worship of all these other gods. There is no denying who this church is. When he defines the church at Thessalonica, the most basic defining character of that church is that it is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And if your church definition doesn't start in the similar place, you're on very shaky ground. Now, this results in a shift of programming in the way that we think about church today. And what happens when we begin to change the way we're programmed, a worship service becomes less about how you feel. Because again, it's easy. When we leave a worship service, how did it make me feel? Was the pastor mean? Did he say mean things that hurt my feelings? Was the, was the music exactly like I like it or did I hate every bit of it? We, we evaluate on the basis of how we feel, but listen to me, that's not the purpose of this gathering. The purpose of this gathering is not to give us the feels, good or bad. The purpose of this gathering is to have an encounter and worship with holy God with other believers to hear from his word, to grow in the grace and knowledge of God, to leave equipped and empowered to continue the work that God has given us. And what happens when we change that programming, the church's ministries become less and less about meeting your needs and more, more and more about you having an opportunity to bless and serve others. That's the shift that ought to happen. Paul goes on, he offers just a, a real simple uh, invocation. It's kind of like a benediction that you'd hear at the end of a letter, but he says to the church at Thessalonica, he says, grace to you and peace. Again, we sometimes treat these initial words as throwaway words, just like if I began a letter and I wrote you a letter and I said, dear so-and-so, unless you're my wife, I would not belabor the dear. Uh, now, my wife, she can look at that dear and she can say, oh, that's so sweet, I'm his dear and, and, and all those sort of things. But if I write you a letter and you're not my wife and I say, dear, you know, dear so-and-so, dear Foster, I love you, but don't, don't worry about that word dear, okay? It's just, it's just, it's customary, okay? We don't have to parse that word dear when we're dealing with interpersonal communication today. So you wouldn't spend a whole lot of time analyzing that word, but here, these words are not throwaway words. These are not words that we just toss out because they're customary. Because we're talking about the context of this church, and we've talked about this church already. This church was founded in short order under tremendous pressure. 
The founder was ran out of town at midnight. There is pressure, there is persecution, there is heat, there is trial. This church doesn't have a a honeymoon period in which it can spread its wings and figure out what it means to be the church. This church is founded under pressure. And so I don't believe Paul chose these words lightly. Grace. Well, grace is never a throwaway word. Grace is never a throwaway word. Grace is the avenue by which we receive salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says what? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not by works lest any man should boast. So when Paul uses the word grace, he's not just offering flattery. This word is is vested with meaning and vested with significance. It is by grace that you are saved. And so when Paul says grace to you, grace communicates a profound truth that our relationship with God is restored because apart from grace, none of us have a relationship with God. Apart from God's grace, none of us are saved. And so when Paul says grace, there's a reason we sing the song Amazing Grace because it is a word, it is a concept, it is an idea that is far greater and far higher and far bigger than anything we can put together. We are the beneficiaries of God's grace. And so he looks at this church that's under pressure and he says you are beneficiaries of God's grace. Your relationship has been restored Grace communicates that God is still working in us and through us. Anybody need God's grace today? Man, oh man. If I hadn't yet, it's coming. Give me time. Let me sit in traffic. I'll need God's grace. We are debtors to God's grace through our entire lives. Another word, again, the word peace. Not a casual word in the Bible. We may throw it around casually today. I think about the the beauty, the, the stereotypical beauty contestant answer. You know what? What's your what are you working for? World peace. You know, we're not, that's not it here. Peace is not a throwaway word. Biblical peace that we have here that's rooted in the Old Testament concept of shalom. It's not just the absence of conflict. It's not just some sort of psychological inner peace that I'm at peace with myself. This is not what peace is talking about here. Peace points to a right ordering of relationships. Because let's be honest, sin, and I'm gonna use a very theological term here for you, sin has jacked up our relationships. It's messed them all up. It's messed up our vertical relationship with a holy God. Sin has messed up our horizontal relationships with peers and with coworkers and with family and with parents and with children. Sin colors and, and challenges every relational dynamic that we have. Peace is the, is the reckoning of that. Peace is the restoration of that. Peace points to the right ordering of those relationships. And so we have vertical peace with God through the gospel because of Christ's completed work on the cross. We are saved by grace through faith and we have peace with God. And we have peace horizontally because we have the right ordering of human relationships. I can have peace with my brother because of the gospel. I can forgive my brother his sin because of the gospel. And so we are encountered in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, with two incredibly important, incredibly rich, incredibly dependent theological concepts that transform and change us. 
And so Paul has reinforced these incredibly significant truths that aren't just relevant in 52 or 53 AD whenever Paul wrote this, but that are still very relevant for us today. Grace and peace still govern our relationship with God. And grace and peace must still govern our relationships within the church. And grace and peace must still govern our relationships with our communities as well. Because I think we all see this each and every single day. We see the consequences of sin and rebellion every day. The church in Thessalonica was birthed out of a furnace of persecution. But the church, not the church of Caesar, not the church of Zeus, the church founded in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, that precious church in this troubled city, that precious church that was turning the world upside down, was a refuge of grace and peace in the middle of their broken world. And guess what? It remains a refuge of grace and peace in the middle of this broken world as well. When you consider the backstory of Thessalonica from Acts chapter 17, it isn't hyperbole to say that the whole city had turned against this small community of believers. They wanted this church gone. But what we see happening is a new reality taking shape. And what we will encounter in 1 Thessalonians is a powerful reminder for this church that's struggling is there is coming a day when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. There is coming a day when there will no longer be any persecution or wickedness or rebellion. There is coming a day and all the things we believe today by faith will be known by sight. But today, we find ourselves waiting. Not like the church at Thessalonica. Parts of the world certainly wait with persecution and trial waiting for them. The troubles we face today are different, but still we wait. But the good news is, is we don't wait alone. We wait as part of this covenant community that's focused on the Lord. We wait as part of this covenant community that's defined by these incredible concepts of things like grace and peace. We wait as part of this community. We wait with hope. We wait with expectancy, believing that God is gonna do what he said. And while we wait, we work. We look for opportunities to represent our king and the kingdom to the world that hates them both. And as we wait, let us make sure that we're busy waiting well. Waiting well means that we're busy doing kingdom work, not just busy sitting. Waiting well means that we're doing everything we can to make sure that we bring as many people on board waiting with us as well. And so while we wait, grace and peace to us all. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you for just the powerful words that you have given to us in your scriptures. I thank you for the Apostle Paul and for his letters and for the impact that they continue to have on us today. And so, Lord, may we be reminded today that church is not about us, it's about you. Church is not here because you need it. 
Church is here because you invite us as your community of redeemed to come in and worship and praise together. We come together not a church focused on us, but a church that's called to focus on you. And so may we learn to judge not based on how we feel, but may we learn to see as you do. And those are hard things for us to do. But by your grace, I pray that we'll be successful in that. And Father, may we be reminded of the potency of your grace that saves us. The dependency we have on grace each and every single day. And may rejoice in the peace that you give us. Peace that writes our broken relationships. Peace that fixes our vertical relationship with you, that we are no longer enemies, but friends. And peace that restores our horizontal relationships with our loved ones, our peers, our coworkers, our communities. And so God, may we be men and women who walk in grace and in peace as part of your church, redeemed for your glory and your purposes. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.